And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first book of your Bible and follow along as I read Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the air, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered." Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood I will surely require a reckoning. Of every beast I will require it, and of man. Of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. With God's help, what I would like to do in these four Sundays of Advent is look with you at the covenants that God made with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And then on Christmas morning... As we gather together here at 9 and 11, the new covenant. And so we'll be dealing in God's covenants through the Advent and with the special focus of asking, how do these ancient covenants prepare the way for the coming of Christ? 
Today we want to look at Noah. I remember hearing a sermon a few years ago preached by John Holkey, who was over at Olivet at the time, on the flood, and he stood up with his huge seven, eight-foot arm span and his thundering voice. He said, Noah and the ark is not a children's story. It was a very memorable sentence. And what he meant was, and I agree, that it is one of the most terrifying and tragic stories of God's wrath in all the Bible. I have a little book here of etchings by Gustave Doré, French artist, with little Hebrew verses underneath them. found this at a used bookstore over in Dinkytown. Gustave Doré's picture in here, you can look at it after the service if you want, I'll leave it up here. His picture of the flood captures the mood far better than the picture that I have on my son's wall at home or that is in most of our Sunday school material. In here, there's a picture of a vast, empty sea with one stone, a little bigger than this pulpit, protruding a few feet above the water. And on the rock are three terrified little children. And sliding down off the rock into the sea are a mother and a father desperately trying to push a fourth little baby up onto the rock. And sitting beside them on the rock is a huge tiger. And bodies are floating in the water. And circling overhead are the exhausted vultures. That's the flood. That's judgment. Whatever else this story is, it isn't cute. The message of the story is threefold. First, the wickedness of man is very great and his heart is full of evil continually. Second, God's patience comes to an end. He hates sin and he brings unrepentant sinners into awful judgment. Third, nevertheless, God does not surrender the purpose for which he created man, namely to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of his glory as human beings reflect God in their faith and in their obedience. Judgment is real and it is horrible, but it is not the last word. The story of Noah points forward to an unknown, unseen remedy, which isn't in the story. Let's look at these three lessons one at a time. First, the story of the flood teaches that the human heart in its natural condition is very, very wicked. Now and then, the Old Testament gives an explicit statement about man's moral condition. For example, in Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, David says. 
But usually what the Old Testament does to portray the doctrine of sin is simply show its results in all their ugliness. As soon as the fall happened in Genesis chapter 3, Adam passes the buck to Eve. You want to kill somebody because they ate the fruit? Kill her. And you can see what has happened to human relationships and the depth of the depravity of Adam's heart a few minutes after the fall. Cain went through with it. He killed his brother. Lamech in the next chapter kills a young man, commits bigotry, and boasts among his wives and before the people. And when you get to chapter 6, verse 5, at the beginning of the flood, this is what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, let me read those last words again, because that sentence was constructed to make a point. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Get the point? Verse 11, a few verses down, says that all this inward evil of the heart was cropping out. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So the first lesson of this story is the doctrine of sin. Advent season makes no sense without sin. For Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The first point of the flood is that we are sinners and deserve judgment. Now, an objection might be raised here. Oh, wait a minute. That's the world before the flood. God swept all that into the ocean. And chose a righteous man. We're the descendants of righteous Noah. Don't lay all that junk on us before the flood that got swept away. Now, to that possible response, the writer of the book of Genesis builds three roadblocks. And the first is found in chapter 8, verse 21. This is after the flood. And listen to these Terrible words of God, beautiful and terrible. God says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. God's assessment of man's moral condition is not improved by the flood. Before the flood and after the flood, man is a moral wreck. The second roadblock that the writer builds to this misunderstanding of the flood is found in chapter 9, verse 20. Our dear hero Noah planted a vineyard and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay Uncovered in his tent. And his own sin leads leads to the sin of his son Ham and Canaan. 
Just like the first man after creation led his whole posterity into sin, so the first man after the flood led his whole posterity into sin. Before the flood and after the flood, human nature is corrupt. And the third roadblock that the writer puts in the way of that misunderstanding is Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 where he gives us the reason why God spared Noah from destruction. The reason God spared Noah was that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was not without sin. God saved him because, as verse 9 says, he walked with God, which I think means he agreed with God about his sin turned away from his sin, trusted God for grace, and found grace in the eyes of the Lord and was saved by grace. Now, to be sure, verse 9 of chapter 6 calls him blameless and righteous. But blameless in the Old Testament doesn't mean perfect sinlessness. It means, you can see this in the Psalms and other places, A man is blameless if he does not persist in his blameworthy actions. If he hates them, turns from them, and comes to God seeking mercy. Then God can say, this man is blameless. Nor is a righteous man in the Old Testament a sinless man. A righteous man... You can see this very clearly in the Psalm 32. A righteous man is a sinner. A righteous man is a sinner who hates his sin, turns from it, trusts God, follows him in the way of obedience, and enjoys acceptance with God by grace. That man is the righteous man. And so you don't have to balk when you see even the psalmist saying, I am righteous. Don't stumble over those texts. That doesn't mean perfect. A confirmation of this understanding of why Noah was saved is given in Hebrews 11, where it says, verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, took heed and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It was not in himself. He was a sinner. And therefore, he is no exception to the universal rule that man's nature is corrupt. Apart from new birth and faith, it may be said of all men, women, and children, from Adam until Jesus comes, Every imagination of the thoughts of their heart is only evil continually. And if you reject that doctrine, then you make nonsense out of the flood and you turn Advent into a prelude of a pretty fairy tale. For Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like us. That's the first lesson. Man is a sinner. Second lesson of the flood 
is that God's patience does not keep on forever, but runs out and he destroys unrepentant sinners. Let's begin in chapter six, verse seven, to see how the writer lays this out for us. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then in verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then in verse 17, he makes clear that it will come by a flood. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then after those three hammer blows of intention comes the event and the day after the headlines, aquatic holocaust. And then the report in verse 21 of chapter 7. And all the flesh died that moved upon the earth, birds, cattle, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm upon the earth and every man, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. In a sense, this is a this is a children's story. Because its lessons are simple enough for a child to understand. If we hadn't taught them any differently and we gave this story to a child and said, tell us what this means. What do you learn from this story? They'd say, God gets mad at sinners. It doesn't take any great maturity to know what this lesson is. God hates sin and punishes unrepentant sinners. When Jesus came into the world... He taught the same thing that the Old Testament taught about sin. Only Jesus said the punishment will be eternal. He said in Matthew 18, 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better to enter into life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to enter into eternal fire. God's flood and God's son teach the same lesson. God hates sin and punishes sinners who don't repent in unspeakable judgment. Now, there is a third lesson to the story. In spite of the intolerable sin of the human heart and in spite of God's holy opposition to that in wrath, God does not surrender his purpose in creation. God created man in his own image to image forth God in the world. And then he said in Numbers 14 that his intention, and he took an oath to see it through, would be to fill the earth with his glory. Meaning, with people who by faith and obedience reflect the glory of God. 
It all was a washout in Noah's day. It was about as far from being fulfilled as it could be. But he would not give it up. As soon as the flood was over, he started over. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. The blessing and the duty imparted to Noah is exactly the words that were given to Adam at the beginning. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse seven, at the end of the paragraph, he repeats it to show that that's the main point. And you be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly on the earth and multiply in it. God had started over, as it were, with a new Adam. But there's a big difference. The first Adam began in paradise. The next Adam begins in sin. And that creates new problems. There are three threats to the fulfillment of this blessing and duty that God has given to Noah. A threat from animals, a threat from man, and a threat from God. Those threats have to be overcome or contained or there's no hope at all for Noah and his descendants to fulfill this mission of filling the earth with the knowledge of God's glory. And so what we find in chapter nine are God's gracious containments of these three threats. And let me show you how God graciously contains each of these threats to his mission. First of all. The, the early family was threatened by animals. Now, that may sound sort of funny to us today in our society, but if you were eight people with an ark full of animals, which multiply much faster than man, with very few weapons probably, it would not be unreasonable to think that we need help or we'll be gone. Genesis 9, 2-3 says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the air and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants back at creation, I give you everything. So God supports man in his mission here to fill the earth with godly people with a protection against the animals by saying, I now put you in a position whereby you can bring all the animal world under the dread of you. Whatever you need to do to make them dread you, in fact, you can use them for your food. The second Threat was the threat of man. What if the brothers get into a fight? What if there rise up manslayers? And we kill each other. What God does in the next verses, verses five to six, is impart to man part of the prerogative that he reserved for himself to take the life of another human being. Verses five to six say, for your lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning of every beast. I will require it and of man 
Of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Before the flood, God kept that entire prerogative for himself. Remember when Cain killed Abel? What did God do? He put a mark on his head and said, Sevenfold will I revenge any man who touches Cain. He kept it all for himself. But now, in a new situation, he imparts to man a prerogative to take the life of a murderer. He makes murder a capital offense among man. And he says... The reason is that man is created in God's image. Man is created in God's image and given the purpose to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. When a man rises up, takes upon himself the prerogative to snuff out the potential of God's glory in the earth. He has risen up against God in such a blatant way that God now says it falls within my purpose, not without my purpose, that by man shall his blood be shed. Later on, God gives some practical legal implications for that kind of teaching in the law. And in Romans 13, 1 to 6, where it says that the government bears the sword. But here the point is that in view of an impending threat against the mission to Noah to fill the earth, God gives him a new right, namely capital punishment. Finally, there is the threat from God himself. How will the mission ever be fulfilled To fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory. If every time there's sin rising in the world, a flood crashes over the hills. And so God contains himself in a covenant promise in verse 11 of chapter nine. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the negative side of the promise. Look back up to verse 22 of chapter 8 if you want to see the positive side of the promise. While the earth remains, and I think there's portent in those words, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, I will protect you against the animals. I will protect you against man and I will protect you against me. I have given you a covenant promise whereby I will contain my wrath and will not let it break forth against you like I have in the past. As long as this earth remains, I will sustain the natural processes on which you depend for life. And I will not sweep over the world again with judgment as long as the earth remains. 
I will withhold my wrath. And so the three lessons of this story are easy enough for a child to understand. One, men are sinners through and through. And in their hearts is only evil continually until the grace of God reaches in. Second, God hates sin. His patience comes to an end and he will sweep unrepentant sinners into eternal judgment. And third, nevertheless, God has a plan to fill this earth with his glory and he will not quit until he does it. Now, if you just stop and ponder that for a minute, you'll see some big implications about Advent. And let me close by pointing you to the implication. If God's purpose is to fill the earth with his glory, and if the earth is full of sinners, then either God has failed in what he did in the flood, Or his purpose was to prepare for something else. His purpose was to point beyond to something that's coming. And since God is not a failure, the New Testament writers, everywhere they deal with Noah, deal with him as a pointer. According to Peter in his second letter, the flood is a foreshadowing of the final flood of fire that will bring this earth to an end. According to Peter, in chapter 3 of his first letter, the ark, as it goes through the water, is a foreshadowing of how we are saved through Christ in baptism. Matthew, in his record of the last days of the Son of Man, say, they will be like the days of Noah. Everyone eating and drinking, doing their own thing. The story of Noah and the flood is incomplete in itself. It points beyond, it begs for an epilogue. And there's a clue in the story what the epilogue will be. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. After the flood, now, Father Noah, what will be? Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. You see the connection there? God's gracious covenant response to Noah was in response to a pure sacrifice. Is not this too a foreshadowing that God who must find a final remedy for sin if his purpose is to be achieved Isn't this a foreshadowing that he will find it in a greater sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of his son? There is an epilogue to the Noah story, namely Advent. Advent is the epilogue to Noah and the flood because it says in Hebrews 9.26, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So God still hates sin. We're still sinful, but God will never surrender his purpose to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. The final remedy is Jesus Christ. Therefore, come to Christ at Advent.
and discover the purpose for which you were made. Shall we pray? Would you stand with me for closing prayer? O God of Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. We acknowledge that we are sinners. We acknowledge that your holiness brings forth wrath upon sin. But all we cling to your loving purpose that your intention to fill the earth with your glory will not come to an end and that we may be included in it through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't closed ranks with Jesus Christ and staked his life on you and turned away from sin and followed you in the path of obedience and rested in your grace that now will be the day the first Sunday of Advent, marking the coming of Jesus into the heart of the lost sheep. Now make our hearts a holy pyre and Noah's hope the kindling fire. And all God's people said, Amen.